friends, and welcome back to Bitching About the Decameron. Let us begin the sixth day. The moon, poised in the centre of the heavens, had lost her radiance, and the whole of our hemisphere was already suffused with the fresh light of dawn when the queen arose and summoned her companions. Leaving their fair abode, they sauntered over the dew, conversing together on one subject after another, and discussing the merits and demerits of the story so far narrated, at the same time laughing anew over the various adventures therein told, until, as the sun rose higher and the air grew warmer, they decided with one accord to retrace their steps, whereupon they turned about and came back to the house. The tables being already laid, with fragrant herbs and lovely flowers strewn all around, they followed the queen's bidding, and addressed themselves to their breakfast before the heat of the day should become too oppressive. And after making a merry meal of it, they first of all sang some gay and charming songs, after which some of their number retired to sleep, whilst others played chess or threw dice. And Dioneo, along with Loretta, began to sing a song about Troilus and Cressida. When the time came for them to reassemble, the queen saw that they were all summoned in the usual way, and they seated themselves round the fountain. But just as the queen was about to call for the first story, something happened which had never happened before, namely that she and her companions heard a great commotion issuing from the kitchen among the maids and men servants. So the steward was summoned, and on being asked who was shouting and what the quarrel was about, he replied that it was some dispute between Lachiska and Tindaro. He was unable to explain its cause, as he had no sooner arrived on the scene to restore order than he had been called away by the queen. She therefore ordered him to fetch Lachiska and Tindaro to her at once, and when they came before her, she had demanded to know what they were quarrelling about. Tindaro was about to reply, when Lachiska, who was no fledgling and liked to give herself airs, rounded on him with a withering look, spoiling for an argument, and said, See here, you ignorant lout, how can you dare to speak first when I am present? Hold your tongue and let me tell the story. She then turned back to the queen and said, Madam, this fellow thinks he knows Sycophante's wife better than I do. I have known her for years, and yet he has the audacity to try and convince me that on the first night Sycophante slept with her, John Thomas had to force an entry into Castle Dusk, shedding blood in the process. But I say it is not true. On the contrary, he made his way in with the greatest of ease to the general pleasure of the garrison. The man is such a natural idiot that he firmly believes young girls are foolish enough to squander their opportunities whilst they are waiting for their fathers and brothers to marry them off, which in nine cases out of ten takes them three or four years longer than it should. God in heaven, they'd be in a pretty plight if they waited all that long. I swear to Christ, which means that I know what I'm saying, that not a single one of the girls from my district went to her husband a virgin, and as for the married ones, I could tell you a thing or two about the clever tricks they play upon their husbands, yet this great oaf tries to teach me about women as though I were born yesterday. In case you didn't pick up on that metaphor, this woman is asserting that Sycophante's wife was not a virgin on her wedding night, which is known because there wasn't blood or anything like that, that it was easy for her husband to have sex with her. While Lachiska was talking, the ladies were laughing so heartily that you could have pulled all their teeth out. Six times at least the queen had told her to stop, but all to no avail, she was determined to have her say. And when she'd come to the end of her piece, the queen turned laughing to Dioneo and said, this is a dispute for you to settle, Dioneo. Be so good, therefore, when we come to the end of our storytelling, to pronounce the last word on the subject. Madam, Dioneo swiftly replied, the last word has already been spoken. In my opinion, Lachiska is right. I believe it is just as she says, and Tindaro is a fool. Hearing this, Lachiska burst out laughing, and turning back to Tindaro, she said, There, what did I tell you? 
Now get along and stop thinking you know more than I do when you're hardly out of your cradle. Thanks be to God I haven't lived for nothing, believe you me. But for the fact that the Queen sternly commanded her to be silent, told her not to shout or argue any more unless she wanted to be whipped, and sent her back to the kitchen with Tindaro, there would have been nothing else to do for the rest of the day but listen to her prattle. And when they had withdrawn, the Queen enjoined Philomena to tell the first story. Whereupon Philomena gaily began as follows. Tender ladies, as stars bedeck the heavens on cloudless nights, and in the spring the green meadows are adorned with flowers, and hillsides with saplings newly come into leaf, so likewise are graceful manners and polite discourse enriched by shafts of wit. These, being brief, are much better suited to women than to men, since it is more unseemly for a woman to make long speeches than it is for a man. I feel like I've heard this argument before somehow. Possibly on day two, somebody made the argument that women should be witty because they shouldn't talk too much? But for some reason or other, whether because we are lacking in intelligence, oh, and this is the same argument from day two as well, whether because we are lacking in intelligence or because all women of our generation were born under an unlucky star, few, if any, women now remain who can produce a witticism at the right moment, or who, on hearing a witticism uttered, can understand its meaning. Since Pampanea has already spoken at some length on this subject, at some considerable length on this subject, I do not propose to elaborate further upon it. But in order to show you how exquisite these sayings can be if proffered at the right moment, I should like to tell you about the courteous way in which a lady imposed silence upon a certain knight. As many of you will know, either through a direct personal acquaintance or through hearsay, a little while ago there lived in our city a lady of silver tongue and gentle breeding, whose excellence was such that she deserves to be mentioned by name. She was called Madonna Aretta, and she was the wife of Messageri Spina. One day, finding herself in the countryside like ourselves, and proceeding from place to place by way of recreation with a party of knights and ladies whom she had entertained to a meal in her house earlier in the day, one of the knights turned to her, and perhaps because they were having to travel a long way, on foot, to the place they all desired to reach, he said, Madonna Oretta, if you like, I shall take you riding along a goodly stretch of our journey by telling you one of the finest tales in the world. Sir, replied the lady, I beseech you most earnestly to do so, and I shall look upon it as a great favour. Whereupon this worthy knight, whose sword-play was doubtless on par with his storytelling, began to recite his tale, which in itself was indeed excellent. But by constantly repeating the same phrases and recapitulating sections of the plot, and every so often declaring that he had made a mess of that bit, and regularly confusing the names of the characters, he ruined it completely. Moreover, his mode of delivery was totally out of keeping with the characters and the incidents he was describing, so that it was painful for Madonna Aretta to listen to him. She began to perspire freely, and her heart missed several beats, as though she had fallen ill and was about to give up the ghost. And in the end, when she could endure it no longer, having perceived that the knight had tied himself inextricably in knots, she said to him in affable tones, "'Sir, you have taken me riding on a horse that trots very jerkily. Pray be good enough to set me down.' The knight, who was apparently far more capable of taking a hint than of telling a tale, saw the joke, and took it in the cheerfulest of spirits. Leaving aside the story he had begun and so ineptly handled, he turned his attention to telling her tales of quite another sort. Madonna Oretta's timely remark was warmly commended by all the men and ladies present, and then the queen ordered Pampanea to continue in the same vein. Pampanea, therefore, began as follows. Fair ladies, I cannot myself decide whether nature is more at fault in furnishing a noble spirit with an inferior body, 
or fortune in allotting an inferior calling to a body endowed with a noble spirit, as happened in the case of Chisti, a fellow citizen, and many other people of our own acquaintance. This Chisti was a man of exceedingly lofty spirit, and yet fortune made him a baker. I would assuredly curse nature and fortune alike, if I did not know for a fact that nature is very discerning, and that fortune has a thousand eyes, even though fools represent her as blind. Indeed, it is my conviction that nature and fortune, being very shrewd, follow the practice so common among mortals who, uncertain of what the future will bring, make provision for emergencies by burying their most precious possessions in the least imposing, and therefore least suspect, parts of their houses, whence they bring them forth in the hour of their greatest need, their treasure having been more securely preserved in a humble hiding place than if it had been kept in a sumptuous chamber. In the same way, the two fair arbiters of the world's affairs frequently hide their greatest treasure beneath the shadow of the humblest of trades, so that when the need arises for it to be brought forth, its splendour will be all the more apparent. This is amply borne out by a brief anecdote I should now like to relate concerning an episode, in itself of no great importance, in which Chisty the baker opened the eyes of Messer Jerry Spina to the truth, and of which I was reminded by the tale we have just heard about Madonna Aretta, who was Messer Jerry's wife. I say, then, that when Pope Boniface, who held Messageri in the highest esteem, sent a delegation of his courtiers to Florence on urgent papal affairs, they took lodging under Messageri's roof, and almost every morning, for one reason or another, it so happened that Messageri and the Pope's emissaries were obliged by the nature of their business to walk past the church of Santa Maria Ughi, beside which Chisti had his bakery, where he practised his calling in person. Though fortune had allotted to Chisti a very humble calling, she had treated him so bountifully that he had become exceedingly rich, but it would never have occurred to him to exchange this occupation for any other, for he lived like a lord, and in addition to numerous other splendid possessions, he kept the finest cellar of wines, both red and white, to be found anywhere in Florence or the surrounding region. On noticing that Messer Jerry passed by his door every morning with the Pope's emissaries, it occurred to Chisti that since the season was very hot, he might as well do them the kindness of offering them some of his delicious white wine. But being sensible of the difference in rank between himself and Messer Jerry, he considered it would be presumptuous of him to issue an invitation, and resolved to arrange matters in such a way that Messer Jerry would come of his own accord. And so, every morning, wearing a gleaming white doublet and a freshly laundered apron, which made him look more like a miller than a baker, Chisti appeared in his doorway at the hour in which Messer Jerry and the emissaries were due to pass by and called for a shiny metal pail of fresh water and a brand-new little bolognese flagon containing a quantity of his best white wine, together with a pair of wine-glasses that gleamed as brightly as if they were made of silver. He then seated himself in the doorway, and just as they were passing, he cleared his throat a couple of times, and began to drink this wine of his with so much relish that he would have brought a thirst to the lips of a corpse. Messer Jerry, having witnessed this charade on two successive mornings, turned to him on the third and said, "'How does it taste, Chisty?" Is it good? Indeed it is, sir, Chisty replied, springing to his feet. But how am I to prove how exquisite it tastes, unless you sample it for yourself? Now, whether because of the heat, or as a result of expanding more energy than usual, or through observing Chisty drinking with so much gusto, Messer Jerry had conceived such a keen thirst that he turned, smiling, to the emissaries and said, My lords, we would do well to test the quality of this gentleman's wine. Perhaps it will be such as to give us no cause for regret. He thereupon led them over to Chisti, who promptly arranged for a handsome bench to be brought out from his bakery, and invited them to sit down. Their servants then stepped forward to wash the wine glasses, but Chisti said, Stand aside, my friends, and leave this office to me, for I am no less skilled at serving wine than at baking bread, 
and if you were expecting to taste so much as a single drop, you were going to be disappointed. And so saying, he washed four handsome new glasses with his own hands, called for a small flagon of his best wine, and taking meticulous care, filled the glasses for Messer Jerry and his companions, none of whom had tasted such an exquisite wine for years. Messer Jerry affirmed that the wine was excellent, and for the remainder of the emissary's stay in Florence, he called there nearly every morning with them to sample it afresh. When their mission was completed and the emissaries were about to depart, Messer Jerry held a magnificent banquet, to which he invited a number of the most distinguished citizens of Florence. He also sent an invitation to Cisti, who could by no means be persuaded to accept. So he ordered one of his servants to take a flask, ask Cisti to fill it with wine, and serve half a glass of it to each of the guests during the first course. The servant, who was possibly feeling somewhat annoyed that he had never been allowed to sample the wine, took along a huge flask, and when Cisti saw it he said, Messer Jerry has not sent you to me, my lad. The servant kept assuring him that he had, but could attain no other answer. So he returned to Messer Jerry and told him what Cisti had said. Go back to him, said Messer Jerry, and tell him that I am sending you to him. And if he gives you the same answer, ask him to whom I am sending you then. The servant returned to Chisti and said, I can assure you, Chisti, that it is to you that Messer Jerry sends me. And I can assure you, my lad, Chisti replied, that you are wrong. To whom is he sending me then? asked the servant. To the Arno, replied Chisti. And since I have no idea what the Arno is, I am checking the footnotes. Here we go, notes for the sixth day, second story. Ah, the Arno is the river on which Florence is built. When the servant reported this conversation to Messer Jerry, his eyes were immediately opened to the truth, and he asked the servant to show him the flask. On being shown it, he said, Chisti is perfectly right. And having given the servant a severe scolding, he ordered him to return with the flask of more modest proportions. On seeing this second task, Chisti said, Now I know that he has sent you to me. And he filled it up for him contentedly. Later that same day, Chisti filled a small cask with wine of the same vintage and had it tenderly conveyed to Messer Jerry's house, after which he called on Messer Jerry in person and said, Sir, I would not want you to suppose that I was taken aback on seeing the large flask this morning, but since you appeared to have forgotten what I have shown you with the aid of my small flagons during these past few days, namely that this is not a wine for servants, I thought I would refresh your memory. However, since I have no intention of storing it for you any longer, I have now sent you every single drop of it, and henceforth you may dispose of it as you please. Messer Jerry set great store by Chisti's gift, and thanked him as profusely as the occasion seemed to warrant, and from that day forth he held him in high esteem, and regarded him as a friend of his for life. When Pampanea came to the end of her story, Chisti's reply was warmly applauded by all those present, and so too was his generosity, after which the Queen was pleased to call upon Loretta, so we're skipping the third story because I don't like it, and instead we shall do the fourth story. When Loretta was silent and they had all paid glowing tribute to Mona Nonna, the queen called upon Nefile to tell the next story, whereupon Nefile began, Amorous ladies, whilst a ready wit will often bring a swift phrase, apposite and neatly turned to the lips of the speaker, it sometimes happens that Fortune herself will come to the aid of people in distress by suddenly putting words into their mouths that they would never have been capable of formulating when their minds were at ease, which is what I propose to show you with this story of mine. As all of you will have heard and seen for yourselves, 
Curado Gianfigliazzi has always played a notable part in the affairs of our city. Generous and hospitable, he lived the life of a true gentleman, and, to say nothing for the moment of his more important activities, he took a constant delight in hunting and hawking. One day, having killed a crane with one of his falcons in the vicinity of Peratola, finding that it was young and plump, he sent it to an excellent Phoenician cook of his, whose name was Chichipio, telling him to roast it for supper, and to see that it was well prepared and seasoned. Chichibio, who was no less scatterbrained than he looked, plucked the crane, stuffed it, set it over the fire, and began to cook it with great care. But when it was nearly done, and giving off a most appetizing smell, there came into the kitchen a fair young country wench called Brunetta, who was the apple of Chichibio's eye. And on sniffing the smell of cooking and seeing the crane roasting on the spit, she coaxed and pleaded with him to give her one of the legs. By way of reply, Chichibio burst into song. I won't let you have it, Donna Brunetta, I won't let you have it, so there. This put Donna Brunetta's back up, and she said, I swear to God that if you don't let me have it, you'll never have another thing out of me. In short, they had quite a lengthy set too, and in the end, not wishing to anger his girl, Chichibio cut off one of the crane's legs and gave it to her. A little later, the crane was set before Corrado and his guests, and much to his surprise, Corrado found that one of the legs was missing so he sent for Chichibio and asked him what had happened to it. Being a Venetian, and hence a good liar, ah, regional rivalries, Chichibio promptly replied, My lord, cranes only have the one leg. Whereupon Corrado flew into a rage and said, What the devil do you mean cranes only have the one leg? Do you think I've never seen a crane before? What I mean, sir, continued Chichibio, is that they have only the one leg. We'll go and see some live ones if you like, and I'll show you. Not wishing to embarrass his visitors, Corrado decided not to pursue the matter, but said, I have never seen a one-legged crane before, nor have I ever heard of one, but since you have offered to show me, you can do so tomorrow morning, and then I shall be satisfied. But I swear to you by the body of Christ that if you fail to prove it, I shall see that you are given such a hiding that you will never forget my name for as long as you live. There the matter rested for the evening, but next morning, as soon as it was light, Corrado, whom a night's sleep had done nothing to pacify, leapt out of bed, still seething with anger, and ordered his horses to be saddled. And having obliged Chichibio to mount an old jade, he led the way to a river bank where cranes were usually to be seen in the early morning, saying, We shall soon see which one of us was lying last night. On perceiving that Corrado was still as angry as ever, and that he would now have to prove what he had said, Chichibio, who had no idea how he was going to do it, rode along behind Corrado in a state of positive terror. If he could have run away, he would gladly have done so, but since that was out of the question, he kept gazing ahead of him and behind him and to each side, and wherever he looked, he imagined he could see cranes standing on two legs. However, just as they were approaching the river, Chichibio caught sight of well over a dozen cranes, all standing on one leg on the river bank, which is their normal posture when they are asleep. So he quickly pointed them out to Corrado, saying, Now you can see quite plainly, sir, that I was telling you the truth last night when I said that cranes have only the one leg. Take a look at the ones over there. Wait a bit, said Corrado, and I'll show you they have two. And moving a little closer to them, he yelled, Aho! Whereupon the cranes lowered their other leg, and after taking a few strides, they all began to fly away. Corrado then turned to Chichibio, saying, What do you say to that, you knave? Do they have two legs, or do they not? Chichibio was almost at his wit's end, but in some mysterious way he suddenly thought of an answer. They do indeed, sir, he said. But you gave a shouted aho to the one you had last night, otherwise it would have shoved its second leg out like these others. 
Corrado was so delighted with this answer that all his anger was converted into jollity and laughter. You're right, Ticivio, he said. Of course. I should have shouted. This, then, was how Ticivio, with his prompt and amusing reply, avoided an unpleasant fate and made his peace with his master. The ladies were highly amused by Chichibio's reply, and in deference to the Queen's wishes, as soon as Nefile had stopped, Panfilo began. Dearest ladies, while it is true that fortune occasionally conceals abundant treasures of native wit in those who practice a humble trade, as was demonstrated just now by Pampanea, it is equally true that nature has frequently planted astonishing genius in men of monstrously ugly appearance. This was plainly to be observed in two citizens of ours, about whom I now propose to say a few words. The first, who was called Mesaforese de Rabata, being deformed and dwarf-like in appearance, with a plain snub-nosed face that would have seemed loathsome alongside the ugliest baronchi who ever lived, was a jurist of such great distinction that many scholars regarded him as a walking encyclopedia of civil law. The second, whose name was Giotto, was a man of such outstanding genius that there was nothing in the whole of creation that he could not depict with his stylus, pen, or brush and so faithful did he remain to nature, who was the mother and motive force of all created things by the constant rotation of the heavens, that whatever he depicted had the appearance not of a reproduction, but of the thing itself, so that one very often finds, with the works of Giotto, that people's eyes are deceived and they mistake the picture for the real thing. Hence, by virtue of the fact that he brought back to light an art which had been buried for centuries beneath the blunders of those who, in their paintings, aimed to bring visual delight to the ignorant rather than intellectual satisfaction to the wise, his work may justly be regarded as a shining monument to the glory of Florence. So this little bit of snobbery about artistic style, the Renaissance artists were famously about realism. Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo and so on, we all remember seeing pictures of theirs that are incredibly realistic. By comparison to other art of the 13th and 14th century that came just before them, it's an incredible shift in style. 13th and 14th century art is not, it's not bad art. They're not trying to be realistic and failing. They're not trying to be realistic. They're trying to give us the most important information, the most relevant information that we need to have, and they're doing it very efficiently and often quite touchingly. If you ever wish to see a fantastic example of vibrant, dynamic 13th century art, have a look for the Morgan Bible and its depiction of the story of David and Goliath. It's a fantastic, graphic novel-esque depiction of the scene, with both characters spilling out of their frame on the page. Goliath because of his size, and David caught in the act of readying his sling to throw the stone. It's fantastic art, but it's not meant to be realist in the same way that the Renaissance artists started to try and achieve. So here is Giovanni and Co. being snobby about the new art style. And all the more so, inasmuch as Giotto set an example to others by wearing his celebrity with the utmost modesty, and almost refused to be called a master, even though such a title befitted him all the more resplendently in proportion to the eagerness with which it was sought and usurped by those who knew less than himself or by his own pupils. But for all the greatness of his art, neither physically nor facially was he any more handsome than Mesaforese. Turning now to our story, I should first point out that both Mesaforese and Giotto owned properties in the region of Mugello, 
and one summer, when the law courts were closed for the vacation, Messer Forese had gone to visit this property of his, and was returning to Florence astride an emaciated old hack, when whom should he meet up with along the road but the aforementioned Giotto, who was likewise returning from a visit to his property. Giotto was no better accoutred than himself. His mount was just as decrepit, and since they were both getting on in years and travelling at a snail's pace, they rode along together. However, they happened to be caught in a sudden downpour, such as we often experience in summer, and they took shelter as soon as they could in the house of a peasant, who was known to both men and was in fact a friend of theirs. But after a while, since the rain showed no sign of stopping and they wanted to reach Florence by nightfall, they borrowed a pair of shabby old woolen capes from the peasant, along with a couple of hats that were falling to bits from old age, these being the best he could provide, and resumed their journey. After they had travelled some distance, by which time they were soaked to the skin and bespattered all over by the steady spray of mud that hacks kick up with their hooves, none of which is calculated to improve anyone's appearance, the weather cleared up a little, and the two men, having ridden for a long time in silence, began to converse with one another. As Messer Ferese was riding along listening to Giotto, who was a very fine talker, he turned to inspect him, shifting his gaze from Giotto's flank to his head, and then to the rest of his person, and on perceiving how thoroughly unkempt and disreputable he looked, giving no thought to his own appearance, he burst out laughing and said, Giotto, supposing we were to meet some stranger who had never seen you before, do you think he would believe that you were the greatest painter in the world? To which Giotto swiftly replied, Sir, I think he would believe it if, after taking a look at you, he gave you credit for knowing your ABCs. On hearing this, Messer Ferese recognised his error, and perceived that he was hoist with his own petard. And having skipped briskly along through these brief and entertaining stories of the sixth day, I shall leave the rest of them for the next episode. Bitching About the Decameron is created by Gwen David and produced by Amanda Martell. Take care, and thanks for listening.